does sexuality begin developing in puberty years or before? What are sexualities outside of gay, straight, and bi? What are the different pronouns and genders I can identify with? Our understanding of gender identity, gender expression, sexuality, and sexual orientation has expanded so much over time, but it's very understandable that many of us still have a lot of questions. On this Back to Basics episode of the Women's Health Cast, guest experts Dr. Ryan Lewellwitz and Dr. Paula Cody make sure we have a solid foundation to understand the nuances of biological sex, gender identity and expression, sexual orientation, and more. They also offer resources for young people, parents, and other supportive adults to learn more about gender identity and expression, and answer questions that were shared by real young people in Wisconsin. From the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm Jackie Askins, and you're listening to the Women's Health Cast. I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Ryan Lewellitz and Dr. Paula Cody back for another Back to Basics episode. Today, we will be talking about sex, gender, and sexuality. Thank you both so much for being here. Thanks for having us. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having us back. Very excited to be here. So today's episode, we're going to talk about, as I mentioned, sex, gender, and sexuality. And I think um, it'll be helpful to just lay out some definitions right at the top, uh, and then we can talk through some of the nuance and some of the questions around sort of each of these concepts. So I guess we can start right away with, um, you know, in this context, when I'm saying sex, what am I referring to and how kind of how is it determined? So I would say, and the definition of sex is is sex assigned at birth, which is based on typically the genitalia that is seen yeah. in the infant. Um, usually, someone's assigned either female or male at birth. There is a population of people that um, the genitals formed in a different pathway than typical, and those can be called intersect or disorders of sexual differentiation. So you talked a lot about anatomy and how sex can be assigned or determined based on like the physical anatomy at birth, but what about determining sex by chromosome? So chromosomes are these like little structures of genetic material. They're part of our DNA makeup. And the middle school biology class breakdown that I'm remembering is, you know, XX chromosomes uh, indicates a female XY chromosome for male. Um, can you tell me, is it as clear cut as I'm remembering it from like my middle school science class? Oftentimes people think of sex as being XX or XY, but it's much more complicated than that. There are people who are X0 or XO, um, that's something called Turner syndrome, and phenotypically, or what they look like is female, and they may identify as female. Um, there is XY with a little part of the Y chromosome missing, that, again, may or may not be phenotypically male. So um, assigning gender based on chromosomes is also not as straightforward as people make it think, may think it may be. So you just said assigning gender um, based on chromosomes, and that actually leads me to my next definition because you know, we've defined sex as sort of a possibly a set of biological characteristics. Um, but what is gender then, and how is it different from or related to sex? 
So one's gender identity is one's internal sense of being male, female, neither of these, both, or no gender. Um, it it's, can be a linear spectrum, but sometimes people don't find themselves on that spectrum either. So it's, it's gender identity is one internal sense, where sex is assigned at birth, usually based on anatomy, based on the body. Um, gender itself is an internal sense of being. Um, for some people, their internal sense of being, their gender matches what their sex assigned at birth is. And that would that's the um, called cisgender or sometimes just cis. Um, so for example, if someone was assigned female at birth and their own sense of self is also um, female, then that would be considered cisgender. Um, sometimes someone is assigned a gender at birth and their sense of being is something different than what they're assigned. And that can be... Um, sometimes it's transgender, sometimes it's agender. There's there's a lot of different terminology for that. But um, sex and gender identity are two different things. Sometimes align, sometimes don't. Um, my last term to define before we uh, dive into some other questions is sexuality. So when we're talking about sexuality... There's um, physical attraction and emotional attraction, and those can be, again, congruent, or they can be the different. Physical attraction is what people usually call their sexual orientation, and um, emotionally attracted to is their romantic or emotional orientation. And so sometimes people are attracted to people of the same gender. Sometimes they're attracted to someone different gender. Again, this can be sometimes it's a, a, on a line of a spectrum. Sometimes it's something very different. Some people do not have um, sexual attraction and they consider themselves asexual. And all of these are um, valid ways of expressing your sexual orientation. Yeah, I, I think it's real important, you know, that, that people understand that, that what one person's, you know, sexuality or their, their gender identity is, is not going to be the same as necessarily anyone else's. And you don't have to fit into one particular box or one particular, um, you know, definition. Um, because again, it can be on kind of a spectrum of, you know, somewhere in between. And I actually do feel Jackie, it is important to bring up gender expression because I think this, this does actually come up a lot. So someone may, again, gender identity, gender expression, and sex assigned at birth, are three different things. So someone may be assigned female at birth and their gender identity is female or women or girl, but their how they present themselves might be more masculine than feminine. And so um, a lot of times how people present themselves have no, has nothing to do with how they feel themselves. So um, I do think that gender expression and gender identity can be very different. Some people do, you know, are assigned male at birth, do um, identify themselves as male, but may prefer to express themselves in more feminine ways. So is it fair to say um, gender identity is an, a, an internal feeling uh, or a belief of who we are as um, individuals, kind of sense of self, and expression is a, an outward presentation of that, how we dress, how we wear our hair, um, sort of external choices that we move through the world in. Okay. I think that's a good way to say it because someone, two people who um, identify as female may present themselves in very different ways. Yeah, it's how you want to express your gender, I guess, to 
to others, right? One thing I've heard us mention a couple times already is um, like a linear spectrum. And so sometimes also when I hear gender identity and expression being discussed, it's on this idea of a one end to another end spectrum with maybe like male on one end and female on the other end. And I'm wondering um, like if that's an accurate way of describing gender and people's experiences of gender. Um, and if, or if, if it's not, if there are other forms of identity and expression that it's like people might have and it's good to be aware of. So the question is, is gender fall onto a spectrum? And it, it's such a complicated question and that answer is going to be equally complicated. Um, and for some people that, that, that does make sense to them, that male on one side, female on the other, and it's somewhere on the line in between. A lot of people are gender fluid and so they feel you know, that the, what one spot is today might be different in a different time point. And so, again, sometimes the spectrum makes you feel like you've chosen a point and that's your point. And so fluid is one thing. Um, some people feel like their gender identity is something apart from womanhood or manhood, and it's something different. And so, and that might not be somewhere on the line, if that makes sense. And so, um, some people do feel like it is linear and some people do not. And so gender identity is a, a pretty complex topic and um, each person, their sense of self is, is a very personal thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it can, you know, and for, for many people, it can change over time as well. So, you know, picking something like Dr. Cody said, you know, on a spectrum can be difficult because it kind of like, narrows you into that one spot right whereas if you have this kind of ebb and flow of things you know then it's it's can again you have that freedom to kind of change over time as well and i guess everyone's experience and um is correct also there's no right way or wrong way to be or to express it's what works for an individual is the correct choice for them and everyone's journey to figure out what their gender identity and gender expression is, is different. And all of those journeys are valid as well. So Dr. Cody, you mentioned cisgender uh, as a, a gender identity that aligns with the sex assigned at birth. So someone is assigned female and identifies as a woman. And so that would make them their gender expression cis, or their gender identity cisgender. Um, can we talk about other gender identities outside of cis? Um, because that's, I know that there's a lot more to life than just cisgender identity. Yeah. So, um, you know, people may identify differently um, than the sex that was assigned at birth. Uh, many times we call this transgender. Um, but they can also, you know, people can be agender where they they don't identify with any particular gender. Um, and again, that goes into somebody's um, expression of, or their gender expression. But um, <clears throat> typically when we think of, you know, transgender, um, a transgender man is someone uh, with a male gender identity and a female birth assigned sex. And a transgender woman is someone uh, with a female gender identity and a male birth assigned sex. Um, and, um, that would be, you know, where that term or the definition for that term. Um, and then for some of those patients or people that, um, are 
identify as transgender, um, they can also have something called gender dysphoria. And so that's a distress that accompanies um, the inconsistency with their assigned gender and then how they express it. And um, so those are, those are um, you know, important terms, I think, um, for people to know. Okay, so you mentioned gender dysphoria. So that's the feelings of like distress or discomfort that someone whose gender identity is different than their sex assigned at birth might feel. What are um, what are some options or what options are there for people who experience gender dysphoria, especially if they're like experiencing it or noticing it at a younger age? Everyone's gender journey is a little bit different, and some people realize that their gender identity does not match their sex assigned at birth at very young ages. Sometimes people um, realize that later. Um, And depending on where they are in the puberty um, cascade, different things can happen. First of all, when someone decides or when someone realizes that their gender identity doesn't um, match their sex assigned at birth, Um, one of the first places they should go is to their primary care doctor who will help them navigate the system, which can be very complex. Um, Here in our area, we um, then the primary care doctor will um, usually refer to a place that has experts in um, gender. For UW, it is the Pediatric and Adolescent Transgender Health Clinic or the PATH Clinic. And in that clinic, there's several physicians, there's social workers, um, that can help the parents and the patient navigate this process. Um, and again, going forward, everyone's gender journey may look a little bit different. Some people may choose to do to block puberty. Some people may choose not to do anything um, that they don't. They are fine with whatever their body does. They're just going to express their gender in a different way. So some people choose no intervention. Some people choose puberty blocking. Some people choose um, to do hormones that fit with their gender identity. Some people choose not to do that. Some people choose to do surgeries, and there's different different surgeries that can happen. Um, for example, you might hear the expression top surgery, and that's when someone who is assigned female at birth um, wants to get the um, mastectomy so that they don't have breasts. And some people choose to have bottom surgery where they can make the genitals um, more visually aligned with their gender identity. So for example, someone born with a vagina may have um, go to plastic surgery to have um, a, a penis created. Some people who have were born with a penis may decide to have a vagina created. Sometimes people get their gonads and gonads, again, being ovaries or testes, they may choose to get those removed. Um, so that the pathway and the journey of everyone, there's many, many different options. All of them have um, research supporting them. All of them, have, you see different specialists depending on what your journey looks like. I think it's worth noting, Dr. Cody, a lot of the gender-affirming surgeries that you mentioned, um, I think are mostly things that would be pursued at a slightly later age, maybe after the age of 18, And I think it's great to emphasize, yeah, everyone's journey looks different and everyone's choice about what kind of intervention they may or may not want to do looks different. And it really, whether any of these things have happened or not, doesn't change someone's identity and expression. And there's no requirement to 
do puberty blocking or not and to us to align with a particular like however you do it is perfect but you know with in patients who um are on puberty blockers is there um is there a time limit to how long patients can be on them for Great question. So puberty blockers, again, they've been around for a long time. Um, They are um, FDA approved for precocious puberty and blocking puberty going through too young or too too young of an age. Um, But we've been using them for a long time in the trans and non-binary population. Now, if I catch someone before they're going through unwanted puberty, I can, we, we don't start them before signs of puberty have started. So again, um, the PATH clinic will determine that puberty has started and then we can start blocking it. Otherwise, like our last episode um, talked about, sometimes people don't start puberty till 13, 14 years of age. And I'm not going to block someone starting at eight until they're 13 if there's no signs of puberty. We don't want to give them medication that's not indicated. So at the signs of puberty, we can we start blocking the unwanted puberty, giving them time to decide what their journey is going to look like. Do they want, or do they want to have um, affirming hormones? Do they want surgery? Again, it just kind of gives us time. Sometimes people are coming for puberty blockers after they've already gone through puberty. So we'll just use an example of a 20-year-old person assigned female at birth, so born with ovaries, and um, if their gender identity is male and they choose to, um, for example use testosterone so they can have that physical appearance, um, a more masculine physical appearance. Um, You don't have to do puberty blocking. A lot of times we can do high enough doses of testosterone, both to stop the unwanted estrogen um, changes from happening and then to get the desired effect of testosterone. However, the end hormones, so estrogen or testosterone, those affirming hormones, those are the ones that have some Medical complications if done at higher doses. So high doses of estrogen can lead to blood clots or cancer risk. High doses of testosterone can lead to um, cardiovascular problems. And so we always want to get the desired physical appearance, physical appearance with the least amount of hormones because that's where for the health. Um, so the question being, you know, do we have to? Can we do blocking at any point? We can. And sometimes people will do this kind of puberty blocking until they get a surgery. So for example, if they had their ovaries or their testes removed, then there's nothing for me to block. We don't need to do blockers then. A lot of times your if your body has been, um, if this puberty has been blocked for a long enough period of time and you're on an affirming hormone, we can usually stop the blockers because your body has been, that, that has been suppressed for so long that we can keep it suppressed on their affirming hormones and you don't need the blockers. That's where um, the people in the PATH clinic, they, they follow labs to let us know what that gender journey is. Now, um, side effects of the puberty blocking. So the, um, the name of the medication that's in, that I implant in the arm is called histrelin or that it can be injectable um, via syringe, and that is called Lupron. And those, again, it's temporary, and it's once we stop it, whatever puberty was going to happen is going to happen, unless um, you are suppressed with other means as well as, for example, like having the gonads removed or being on affirming hormones enough to suppress. So again, the, the medicine that I do is temporary, and it's reversible, if I took it out and you're not on any sort of affirming hormone, then whatever puberty you would go through based on your anatomy assigned at birth, you would go through. Um, now, in people who don't view their um, their gender 
expression is neither masculine or feminine and would like to be more in the um, gender ambiguous or non-binary um, field. That can be a little bit tricky because the longer I do the blocker without any sort of affirming hormones, we can have other uh, medical effects, including bone health. And so usually we don't like doing blocking for too long a period of time without some sort of add back hormone to help protect the bones. You know, it's like a pause. And so for some patients, they continue on, you know, or some patients just go, okay, you know, like I'm just going to go on with my normal puberty. And so I guess that's what I was yep. kind of getting at. So, yeah. That's the nice thing about the blockers are they are temporary. And so if someone's trying to figure out they have, you know, gender dysphoria of some sort, but haven't exactly identified their own gender identity and expression, sometimes it's just a pause button to give them time to figure out what they want their journey to be. So what are some of the most important things for parents or supportive adults to know and understand about how sexuality, gender identity, and gender expression develop for kids and young people? Yeah, I think it, I think one of the biggest things for adults is, is just to recognize that this can be a very confusing time for children and adolescents and that um, being a supportive adult is really important and listening and, um, you know, talking to your children about, you know, gender and identity and all those things is really, really um, important. And I think it plays a vital role in the mental health of your child as well. And that, um, you know, knowing that they have someone that they can turn to and talk to and that you'll support them and help them find the right professionals. And um, I, I think I think that's the, you know, if if I could give one message out there to the adults is just be like, hey, you know, like like listen to your kids and 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 if they're going through something, then try to help them. To piggyback on what Ryan is saying, um, the suicide rates in people who are in the LGBTQ um, IA uh, category is really, really high. And oftentimes, um, you know, like Ryan said, the gender journey, the sexual orientation journey, both both of those things are very personal and very complex. It can be fluid over time. So sometimes it changes based on many things. And again, with that high suicide rate, um, one of the most protective things for this is having um, a, a supportive family, supportive friends, supportive school. We see that suicide rates are much better in place in places where these people feel that they can be themselves and be supported. And so uh, to echo what Ryan said, that the most important thing that parents and, you know, guardians, caregivers, anyone who cares for any, um, any person is to be open and leave the door open for conversations and be able to listen um, in a non-judgmental manner and just be a person that they can come talk to. Yeah. And just because you may not, you know, as an adult understand what, you know, this young person's going through doesn't mean it's not valid and not real, you know? And, and so you just have to recognize that, yeah, there's things that you or I may not, may not, we just, we just may not, you know, be able to, to relate and, but that's okay. You don't have to relate. You just need to, you know, be supportive of that person. Right. What about, do you have any recommendations for where supportive adults can do more learning? So, you know, we all do have different experiences and different backgrounds. And also 
maybe for some of us, um, gender identity, gender expression wasn't discussed as we were growing up. And so there's knowledge gaps and just like a ton of space to learn more and grow more. Um, where can we look to find more information and figure out how to have conversations in like really safe, affirming ways? When in doubt, talk with your child's pediatrician. I'm going to say that time and time again, because you're, the pediatrician are going to know what resources are available in your area and what resources are available where we practice here in Madison might be different than in the, you know, my hometown of Fond du Lac where I grew up and resources might be different. So talking with your pediatrician, I think is step one. You may find someone that if you're, if you're not finding answers, you know, or getting support, it's okay to, to look elsewhere too. You know, I mean, if you, Maybe, you know, you, you've, you've run into roadblocks, you know, with, with, you know, people you've worked for before. And it's okay to look outside, I guess, like the, you know, if you've got a family physician that you've worked for for years or, you know, known for years and, you know, they're not helping you out. Well, it's okay to look outside of that, you know. And, um, you know, I would encourage people just to kind of, you know, if, if, if you're not feeling like you're getting the appropriate help, then it's okay to look elsewhere too. Um, hopefully... Whoever you've got out there is, is willing to help you and get you to the right places or your family to the right places. But, you know, sometimes that doesn't happen. And so you got to be a little bit of an advocate for yourself as well. But, yeah. Um, there are a number of resources, and these are resources I have vetted with the PATH Clinic here at UW. So I do feel comfortable advertising them as appropriate. Um, for younger children, there is the Gender Identity Workbook for Kids um, by... Um, Kelly Stork, Diane Ehrensaft, and Noah Grigny. And um, that is a workbook that helps um, kids go through, you know, not just going through the definitions, but helping to figure out who their identity is and how what they want their expression to be. And I think that that is a, you know, you get skills for navigating all of this. And that's something that I think adults could benefit from. But this one is written with kids in mind. There is also um, a Gender Quest Workbook, A Guide for Teens and Young Adults Exploring Their Gender Identity by Ryland J. Testa, Deborah Kuhart, and Jamie Pitta. And those, again, workbooks can be really helpful. Instead of just reading something, it's a little bit more interactive and maybe helping to prompt you to actually to, to think about your own identity instead of trying to assume the identity that you think you should. And other... Um, recommendations from the path from the providers at the path clinic include the gender creative child the transgender child and the transgender teen those are all guides for parents and um, in addition to the workbooks that I just mentioned um, scarletine so s-c-a-r-l-a-t-e-e-n.com is a good website for kids and then a lot of the things that we talked about in this episode are kind of complex. You can see that sometimes we even struggle with putting words to it and being eloquent and discussing sex versus gender versus gender expression versus sexual orientation. And um, the there's a website that, that does a great job framing these aspects, and it's called transstudent.org. And they have the gender unicorn, which el- helps to... Um, visually demonstrate the difference between sex, gender, gender expression, sexual orientation. 
for our listeners, all of the resources that you've just heard listed will be in um, the show notes on our podcast page. So no need to write down the links or anything. I will We will pull them all together and make sure that you can click straight off our podcast page to learn about anything that um, Ryan and Paula have shared. So we've talked through all my questions. We've covered everything I prepped for this episode. And now I'm very excited that we have a handful of questions that were submitted by real young people in Wisconsin. So for this whole series, this episode, and many of the rest of them, we've had the awesome opportunity to work with the Wisconsin Patch Program. That's providers and teens communicating for health um, to get some questions from their youth advocates. And uh, now we've got audio clips and we'll answer a few questions that were submitted by Patch Youth Advocates. What are the different pronouns and genders I can identify with? Well, let's um, take it back a little bit and talk about what actually is a pronoun. Um, A pronoun is a word that actually refers to the people talking or someone or something that's being talked about. So I, you, um, them. Um, gender pronoun is a pronoun that, that the person chooses for themselves. So they're the pronouns that we refer to people in sentences and conversation. So there are masculine pronouns, like he, him, or his. There are feminine pronouns, she, her, hers. And then there are gender neutral pronouns. One of the more common ones being they, them, or theirs, but there's a bunch of other gender neutral pronouns. And it's very important that we honor the pronouns that someone assigns for themselves. And those actually might be a little bit fluid that some days um, a person is wanting to use their masculine pronouns and some days they're wanting to use feminine pronouns and all of those are valid. And I think the most important thing is for us to identify what pronouns we use in order to make someone comfortable um, discussing the pronouns that they prefer as well. Yeah. and and. I think one thing too is that if you make a mistake, you know, it's that's that happens. I mean, I've had that happen with patients and the best thing you can do is just say, Oh, I'm sorry. And then ask the person what they want to be referred to um, or how they want to be referred to. And, um, and then just, you know, continue the conversation and, and, you know, but just acknowledge it and, and don't try to like ignore it or force a pronoun on somebody you know, it's just disrespectful in general. So, what are sexualities outside of gay, straight, and bi? There's... Yeah, there's just there's just a wide there's this is just a wide spectrum, you know, of of different different ways that people are expressing their sexuality. Um, you know, outside of of gay, straight, bisexual, you know, some of the more common ones would be asexual or you know, sexually fluid or pansexual. Um, asexual meaning you just don't have sexual attraction to anyone in particular fluid meaning that well it could change right and then pansexual referring to that it gender doesn't you know or really play a role in who you're attracted to um and then there's more again like you can get into nuanced you know um you know different sexualities out there um but um yeah, I mean, there's 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 lots of different ways that people are, um, I guess, exploring or labeling themselves. And it might be you're um, sexually attracted to one thing and emotionally attracted to something else. And again, it's very personal. All of these are valid. And like Dr. Luella said, there you know, there's um, off it, pers- a person usually determines what their own 
sexual orientation is and what that label might be. And some people don't like labels at all. So, you know, people who are attracted to a different gender may consider themselves, you know, straight or heterosexual. They may not want that label at all. People who are attracted to someone of the same gender may call themselves gay or homosexual and some, or a gay woman may prefer the type, the label of lesbian. Again, it's very, very individual. Um, some people call themselves um, queer and queer used to be um, a word that used to hurt or insult people. And um, some people still find it offensive, but some people are rec- reclaiming that as um, a proper and correct term for themselves. Um, and so you may not want to use the word queer as unless you know that that's how they identify themselves. There's a lot of words that have a history of um, negative connotations that some people are reclaiming as their own. But um, if you hear someone referring to themselves as queer, um, usually that's something other than straight or heterosexual or sometimes people call themselves gender queer, and that's something other than cisgender. So you may hear the word queer, and again, just you know, proceed with caution with that. If someone has claimed that as their own, that's great, uh, but don't ever assign that to someone without having that conversation with them, because some people still do find it offensive. Does sexuality begin developing in puberty years or before? Great question. Um, I know you asked about sexuality. I'm going to put sexual or um, uh, gender identity in there because gender identity is often um, the person figures out their gender identity very early. And so people are often surprised that gender identity sometimes comes about two or three that someone feels that the gender that's been assigned to them is not right and they start acting in ways um, with the, the other gender. And again, we see it often very early, not every time, but often very, very early. Um, when we're talking about uh, sexual orientation, that I tend to see um, probably the beginning of puberty is the earliest I see it. So maybe nine, ten ish. I don't see because um, relationships change as you get older. There's um, when you're younger and looking at playmates, it's not usually a whole lot of sexual um, attraction involved. And I, you know, I, I believe it's at the start of puberty when we start getting those changes in hormones that we've discussed that. Um, sexual attraction starts to come about more. Yeah, and I think, like, you know, a lot of the definitions I've looked up for this is, like, they quote, like, adolescence, right? And so when does that start? Well, as a general kind of age, a lot of terms say, you know, 10, you know. Um, But, yeah, I think it's it's with that onset of puberty, the hormone changes, and then... um, and I think also your environment, your family, you know, this, the internet exposure, social media exposure. Um, I think those can play a role too in like how soon that develops, you know, because if you're exposed to more, um, I guess, sexual content, you know, there's a chance that that might come, may become present in your in your thought process sooner. Than say someone who's not necessarily exposed to that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a lot of there's a lot of things that play into when someone develops their sexuality or their sexual orientation. Um, and again, I, I think it's both somewhat puberty related, and then in situation, yeah, and it may change throughout life, yeah, right? Situational. I mean, there there may be oh, someone yeah. who identifies as 
for example, heterosexual for the first 20 years of their life, and later they identify something different as um, they do more, you know, self-exploration and stuff like that. So I, I, you know, just like gender identity may be fluid, sexual orientation may be fluid as well. And yeah, I think that can change throughout life. What kind of transitioning resources do I have access to as a trans kid in Wisconsin? Here at UW Health, we have the Pediatric and Adolescent Transgender Health Clinic that is run by um, physicians who are um, had extra training in uh, transgender health, and that is an excellent resource that we're very lucky to have. Um, in order to access that clinic, you should probably talk with your primary care provider, and they will be the, the one who can help you navigate and get you to that clinic if that's what you're interested in. You know, the Milwaukee area has the um, gender health clinic at uh, uh, Children's of Wisconsin, the, um, and then um, Aurora um, in Milwaukee also has a um, gender services clinic. Um, and then Planned Parenthood is also a great resource for people who are maybe in, say, a more rural area and may not have a specific um, gender services clinic. And so then they could potentially help you um, or help the person navigate how to get in touch with a provider that can help them. Um, so there, there are there are resources even for people, say, in like, you know, northern rural Wisconsin and again I think Planned Parenthood or just talking to your primary care provider your pediatrician your OBGYN is a good place to start. Thank you both so much for um, walking through this with me it was not it can be a really complex topic and I just appreciate the time and the nuance that you both brought to this conversation thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Yeah thank you appreciate it. All of the resources mentioned by Dr. Cody and Dr. Lowellwitz are linked in today's episode description, or you can find them at womenshelpcast.podbean.com. On the next installment of our Back to Basics series, Dr. Cody and Dr. Lowellwitz will help us learn about bodily autonomy, safety, and consent. The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UW-SMPH Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can listen to the Women's Health Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the handle at W-I-S-C-O-B-G-Y-N. Let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us in your podcast app, and let us know what issues you'd like to learn about at the link in our episode description. Thanks for listening.